I want to invite you to remain standing one minute longer and join me in Mark chapter 2. We'll read the text for today's sermon. Pick up today where we left off last week with verse 23 and the final vignette in chapter 2. And if you remember from last week, it's the fourth of five that make up this chiastic structure of Mark 2, 1 through 3, 6. But let's read beginning in verse 23 from Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, that is Jesus, as... And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, as we stand with your word opened, uh, may you open the scriptures to our minds and to our hearts. Uh, Grant to us a level of understanding that could only be Uh, be attributed to the Holy Spirit, and then give to us a will uh, that is strengthened and empowered by your grace to go out and do that which you compel us to do by your word. We thank you in advance for answering this prayer offered without um, doubt and offered with unselfish motivation. We love you and we trust you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. We live in a day and age when genuine virtue is not so highly prized as is the appearance of virtue. I'm going to say it again. We live in a day and age when genuine virtue is not so highly prized as is the appearance of virtue. Now, this isn't new. From all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the temptation was to appear more virtuous than we actually are. Why did Adam and Eve clothe themselves? Why did they hide from God when he appeared and asked Where are you? Why did Cain try and hide the fact that he had killed his brother Abel until he realized he couldn't trick God? Why did Ananias and Sapphira try and pretend that their offering was more generous and sacrificial than it really was? The answer is simple. In our fallen, sinful state, we easily succumb to the temptation to appear virtuous while entertaining secret sin. This defect is as old as sin's presence on earth 
with mankind. Our social media age has simply taken an ancient human temptation and turned the dial, if you will, up to 11. In fact, you don't even have to be a devout Christian to make this type of an observation. Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX and um, African genius, uh, he said in a recent interview, what I care about is the reality of goodness, not the perception of it. But what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while doing evil. It's incredibly insightful. And so I come to a quote that has rung in my mind for about a year now, and I, I can't find the source. It wasn't me, it was some genius. But it goes something like this. Desire to be holy a thousand times more than appearing to be so. Desire to be holy a thousand times more than appearing to be so. Such is the theme that confronts us today in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. And so if you're taking notes, this sermon is obviously titled Lord of the Sabbath. But if you're taking notes, we'll consider first and foremost, number one, the situation. The situation, and I'm not talking about the rippling abs of a reality TV star from 10 or 15 years ago. Anybody? If you know the reference, it's almost like shame on you. You know what I mean? Like you shouldn't. The situation. I can't, I can't say it now without. Well, there's a situation. One Sabbath day, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck grains of head or uh, heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, "Look, what they're doing is not." lawful on the Sabbath. Well, because the disciples of a first century rabbi wouldn't do anything that their rabbi hadn't approved or modeled for them, by indicting Jesus' disciples in violating the Sabbath day laws, the Pharisees were indirectly indicting Jesus himself. You might imagine the Pharisees said in their minds, where did they learn that they were allowed to do this on the Sabbath day. We certainly didn't teach them that. They must have learned it from Jesus. Now, let's explore what they were doing exactly. Because this was a walking culture, footpaths crisscrossed through private grain fields. This is critical. To imagine a walking culture with massive private grain fields owned and operated by the rightful owners with walking paths that would go directly through them in various directions. When Moses laid out the regulations for life in Israel, a provision was made for any hungry Hebrew traveler it says, you can take your hand and gather a few heads of grain from the edge of a field to eat as a snack on your way. 
you cannot take out your sickle and start mowing the guy's wheat down and pack it up and take it home. Specifically, it says what you can and cannot do. You can gather a few for a snack. You cannot steal. Okay? But this act is not stealing. It is, in fact, law that you could run your fingers through the top, grab a few fresh, you know, pieces of grain, rub them in your hands together to break off the husks and eat a healthy, hearty little snack. Chuck Smith actually talks about doing this growing up as a child. And it was, uh, you, you chew it like gum, wheat gum. Sounds gross. But if you're hungry, you know what I mean? A lot of gross stuff tastes pretty good. In fact, that's how parents know that their kids aren't actually hungry or full, right? If you were hungry, you would eat your dinner, but you're not, so good night. We'll see what happens tomorrow. Mom and dad of little ones, you should wrap that food up, put it in the fridge, and serve it to them for breakfast the next day. And they go, I don't want to eat meatloaf and green beans for breakfast. And you go, oh, well, if you're hungry... you'll eat, right? It's just a little tip. Raise five kids, mostly not picky eaters. They're pretty good. Go with the flow. Stretch the budget. Eat the leftovers. All right. Back to this. Well, the same regulation goes for having a couple of grapes from a vineyard that you might walk through. You can pluck a few. You just can't put any in your bag. Very clear, Deuteronomy 23 25 and 26. You can find that reference. Now, what's the point of this regulation? What was the point of this very specific law, this, 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 this allowance with restriction? It is simple. Reasonable generosity while upholding the principle of private property. Reasonable generosity upholding the principle of private property. This isn't communal living like some kind of socialistic stereotype where everyone has the right to everything regardless of responsibility or work. That's been tried and it fails. Um, But it's also not ruthless, heartless individualism either. There is a reasonable regulation that, that governs God's people from God's mouth. Your countrymen shouldn't starve to death while he is inches from your grain or grapes. Yes, they are yours. No, he can't just steal them. But mercy trumps private property rights in matters of necessity. Besides, it would only be a little at the edge of the field. And if a landowner was honest and the traveler doesn't abuse it, everyone wins. Because sometimes you are the hungry traveler walking through someone else's grain field. And sometimes they are the hungry traveler walking through yours. Reasonable generosity while upholding private ownership. It's quite wise if handled with integrity. But they were doing this on the Sabbath day. This is the issue. The religious leaders had developed rules. Rules to govern the Sabbath day. 39 different laws that had, if you will, like a a tree with branches had various bits of application for each 39 laws meant to govern the one statement, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. One simple statement from the mouth of God, 39 man-made rules with application. It's like government, right? 
You know what I mean? Just regulations and taxes and goods. And blah, 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 you know, it's like, golly, leave me alone. You know, just let me have some chickens. You know, like, I better stop because I could rant on that. Now, one of the rules that the Pharisees had written to govern the Sabbath day is that you cannot do this Deuteronomy 24 thing. You cannot gather grain with your hands. You can't break up the husks and eat it as a little snack on the Sabbath day. We consider that to be work. God says you can. We say you can't on the Sabbath day. You see this? Now, this was all part of the way religious leaders had turned the good gift of Sabbath rest into a means of oppression and guilt. The thought from the Pharisee was the more deprivations you have, the more holy you become. So deprive, 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 holy, 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 and so they developed these endless Sabbath day restrictions. Allow me to read a few of them for your edification and perhaps entertainment. According to the Pharisees, you can eat one whole olive and remove the pit with your teeth, but the rest of the olives you eat better be pre-pitted or else you can't eat them because removing the pit from two olives is work and therefore can't be done on the Sabbath day. I'm not kidding. That's real. You can walk 1,999 steps, but not 2,000. The 2,000th step is sin. The seamstress, because she sews for work, cannot carry her needle on the Sabbath day in her pocket. The scribe may not carry his pen or quill. You cannot mill wheat and sift flour, and therefore you cannot gather the heads of grain and break them up in your hand. That is the equivalent of milling and sowing and harvesting and, and sifting. You cannot knead dough, bake bread, slaughter an animal for dinner. The homeless man can't carry his bed. In fact, nothing could be carried that weighed more than a dried fig, so women can't wear jewelry. It's too heavy. Speaking of women, you're not allowed to look in a mirror on the Sabbath day because you might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. And that would be the work of maintaining your physical appearance. You can't leave a radish in salt because then it would pickle, and pickling veggies is work. You can only use enough ink and write enough for two letters. Not two letters, dear Sally, thanks for the eggs. No, A and B. That's all the ink you're allowed to use on the Sabbath day. On and on it goes. Everything related to wool and food and this and that and dying and this. Governing every aspect of normal daily life for the ancient Jew on Shabbat or Sabbath. This was more than restrictive though. It would induce guilt. You have to imagine the education of the people is only as sophisticated as they are given. The religious leaders tell them what they know and they have nothing else. We laugh at the silly-sounding nature of these specific restrictions, but we have to understand a couple of things. Number one, the Jews recognized that their Roman occupation as of first century times of Jesus has its roots in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. So for the better part of the past 400 years, the land of Israel and the people of God did not live as an independent nation. They had empirical 
overlords, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then, of course, now the Romans. Why did this start? Well, because their forefathers had repeatedly violated God's law and incurred God's promised wrath. It's Deuteronomy 29. If you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I will allow the nations that you drove out of the promised land to drive you out of the promised land. And it happened exactly as God said, exactly as Moses wrote down. And so as of the first century Hebrew culture, the people hoped for the Messiah who would free them from this bondage, and they were therefore committed critically to not repeating the mistakes of the past. And that much is reasonable. But what they had also done was to create an environment where the people weren't so much taught the scriptures as much as they were taught how the religious leaders interpreted the scriptures with their list of do's and don'ts. It would take a great deal of energy just to learn and memorize the detail of what they were allowed to do and weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath day. In the Talmud, which is like the commentary on the Jewish Bible, there are 24 chapters devoted specifically and exclusively to what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath day. God's law simply says, don't work, rest, right? It was man who complicated it, and in the process, critically, lost the spirit of it. But we cannot forget, they believed, and rightly to a certain degree, that their current predicament was because previous generations were not holy enough, set apart enough. And so they were determined not to continue in the same old sins that had cost the nation her freedom. For a little glimpse of this, just read Nehemiah. And and what you find over and over again are these references to the sins that were the reason why they had to come back and rebuild in the first place. And Nehemiah was committed to purging these activities from the nation going forward. He even says at one point in, in, in Nehemiah, it's 13 or 14 chapters. It's really a, an easy read. He even says at one point, are we, don't you guys remember? This is what put us in Babylon to begin with. It's, it's, it's verbatim, word for word. So you can see how over time, this culture of making sure we don't repeat the mistakes of the past becomes the norm. And it becomes more sophisticated and more detailed generation by generation until the point Jesus shows up and he goes, whoa, whoa, wow, right? This is the idea. So that's the first thing. The second thing we have to remember about this is that that this, the oppression of this list would lead to Sabbath day stress like no other day of the week for the average Hebrew citizen. Can't you imagine that? Just try to put yourself in their shoes, counting steps, carefully checking your pockets to make sure you're not carrying too much stuff or the wrong stuff. You're having dinner and suddenly you realize you've been enjoying some olives, but you weren't counting your pits, right? Was that last olive, did that have a pit in it? How many pits are there on the table? Oh no, a Pharisee might walk and look inside my window. Quick guys, clear out all the pits, right? 
real anxiety. If a Pharisee peeks in my window and sees all these olive pits, he's going to know we've been working. We've been pitting these olives. I was just having a meal with my family. Quick, hide the evidence. And then, once the evidence is hidden, then you're left with still the guilty conscience. You get it? The stress of the endless restrictions turns a gift from God for our rest into a stressful day of fear and guilt. Meanwhile, the average citizen doesn't know how far off all of this is. The spiritual authorities all teach this. And so suddenly a day that is required to be free from labor has turned into a living nightmare. Your conscience would plague you. Your day is ruined. You can hardly stand it. You wish above all else that it would just be tomorrow and you can go back to work. You get it? So you might imagine Jesus with perfect understanding of the Sabbath day looking at this situation, knowing the minds and the hearts of the people, And not just being offended at this oppression. Not merely bewildered at the lack of understanding. But don't you think he was heartbroken? Sort of to say, my father and I gave you this good gift. But in your arrogance and hardness of heart, these men of false piety have turned a gift into a curse. And he would just be grieved, no? Don't you think that that is in part why he said to the masses who lived under the oppression of their religious overlords, come to me, all who are heavy laden, burdened, I will give you rest, Shabbat, Sabbath? This is the context of that great phrase. They are not burdened with the good law of God. They are burdened with needless and endless rules from man. The law of God is a good gift. They were heavy laden with pharisaical burdens. And we know this because of something else that Jesus said about the Pharisees, quote, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Clearly, Jesus had taught his disciples and had modeled for them otherwise, because there they were, freely gathering grain and having a snack. And so here comes the accusation. Why do your disciples break the Sabbath tradition, plucking grain, removing the husks and eating? And so Jesus responds with wisdom, not by answering the question directly, but by asking them a question of his own, which was a, it's a great ancient Hebraic form of conversation. You answer a question with a question. It's today a fantastically passive-aggressive way to have a conversation. <laughs> I won't give an example we don't have time for that laugh and so we come from the situation to number two to this story that jesus tells the story 
Jesus said to them, verse 25, haven't you ever read your Bibles? <laughs> Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Aviathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and he gave it to those who were with him? Have you not read? This is a reference to 1 Samuel 21. I encourage you to read the context of it this week for fun, for homework. David was running from the maniacal and jealous King Saul. This king was in open, unapologetic rebellion against the Lord. He had been told by the very mouthpiece of the prophet who anointed him king that the kingdom had been torn from him and given to another because of his own disobedience. But instead of submitting to this declaration, Saul tried to kill the one God had anointed as the next king of Israel, King David. So David, running for his life with a small band of loyal friends and fellow soldiers, was hungry. He came to the city of Nob, where the tabernacle had, was, was at the time erected and functioning for worship and sacrifice. And he asked the priest Ahimelech for something to eat. And Ahimelech says, the only thing we have is the special bread, the bread of the presence. And Dave goes, sounds good, <laughs> right? This was 12 loaves of ceremonial bread that was baked to a very specific recipe with this much fragrance and this much oil, this type of flour, 12 loaves one loaf, which symbolically represents each tribe of Israel, and it was placed in the presence of God on a golden table and changed out every Sabbath day. You can't have moldy bread in God's presence, right? So it would be swapped out. But, but the week old bread wouldn't be wasted, it would be eaten because God's smart. But it was only to be eaten by the priests in a holy place and in a holy way. No one else was allowed to eat this bread. All of this was ceremonial, and all of these regulations had a meaning. They were all part of a picture that God is painting in the daily life of the people of Israel. You can find this in Exodus 25 and Leviticus 24. David knowing the law, didn't hesitate to say, yeah, sounds good, I'll have the special bread. Oh, by the way, it's made with the best ingredients. <laughs> so this would be some killer bread, all right? Uh, the, the bread would be made of the finest flour because the finest flour that had been sifted and all the you know little chunks and the chewy bits are taken out, like my son Jake doesn't like the bits of grain in his bread, you know, he's like, ah, I don't know. Fine flour, fine texture, the best olive oil, scented with frankincense and, mm, get a little extra oil, you know what I'm saying, dab it up, this would have been the best bread. And knowing the law, David said, sure. The priest only had one reservation, were the men who were going to be eating it, are they also sort of like ceremonially clean, which I won't get into that. And in this case, these two men, critically, listen, without the narrators of Samuel condemning their actions, 
without God calling down fire from heaven to punish them, they violated the ceremonial law. David took the bread and he gave it to his soldiers and the priest gave it willingly. And why did they do this? They did this because they knew the heart of God and the Pharisees didn't. David is a man after my own heart. He understood. The Pharisees didn't. Perhaps David and Ahimelech, in a side conversation, weighed God's words from Leviticus 19, where it says, you shall not bear a grudge against your neighbor, you shall famously love your neighbor as yourself. And the love of neighbor, when placed up against the ceremony restricting this bread for priests, these men knew the love of neighbor was a higher law than ceremony. Now, this doesn't make everything in life relative, but it does show that mercy and necessity trumps ceremony that would equate to murder. You can't uphold the ceremonial observation to condemn your neighbor to death by starvation. The law of God is not capricious and arbitrary. It is wise. To treat it with such unreasonableness is to show you don't know the heart of God. Now, the danger in a pastor teaching this application is that we are too easily drawn down a path where there are no boundaries. Everything is relative. No absolutes. No balanced, careful observation. Only love as the hippies or the world might define it. But if we go there, first of all, we miss the context. Okay? We miss the point. Jesus was revealing the Pharisees' false piety. Their appearance of virtue while actually doing evil. And here's how we know this. Because along with the Sabbath day restrictions, there were also Sabbath day loopholes. If you knew how to exploit them properly. According to the Pharisees, you could only travel 1,999 steps, right? Unless the day beforehand, you put some food 1,999 steps away. Then on the Sabbath day, you could travel 1,999 steps, even to the 2,000th step to get the food. And then, you know what you would get? You'd get a fresh bank of 1,999 steps to walk home. How convenient. Oh, and if you took a piece of wood the day before Sabbath and you put it across the, the alleyway at the end of a long alley where your house is located, you don't have to start counting your Sabbath day steps until you cross that piece of wood because you've effectively made that piece of wood the new threshold of your house. How clever. Get some bonus steps there too. But could the average fisherman learn all 25 chapters of the minutiae in order to execute and potentially exploit all these, ex these very specific rules while also trying to eke out an existence under high taxation and Roman occupation? Almost 
certainly not. So, the Pharisees had developed a system that only they truly knew how to exploit, while everyone else lived under the tyranny of their oversight. You tie up heavy burdens, you lay them on people, but you don't lift them even with your finger. You exploit rules to get around the burdens you lay on everyone else. It's illuminating, isn't it? Now, all of this historical evidence, I've often been asked, where do you find this, where do you find that? Part of it's just commentary, research, years of walking with the Lord, years of studying the scriptures, but there's some very good resources out there. One of them is um, Urshimes, Urshimes. It's called the the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. You search that phrase, you'll find the book. And it's got all of this historical, you know, research and then some. The life and times of Jesus the Messiah. It's noted in my notes if you get them. But look, this exploitation of, of loopholes is not unlike something that we can relate to in our day and age. See, this all sounds very foreign to us, doesn't it? It's not. It's not unlike the political class in America. They can get away with murder. We won't say that explicitly. We'll say generally they can get away with murder. What they really get away with for sure, as in documented, not conspiracy theory nonsense, but documented evidence, they get away with insider trading of stocks to their benefit all the time. But you can't. If you find inside information and you make a move before that information is public and it benefits you financially, they will put you in jail. But they will get reelected. Yeah. In fact, there are investors who meticulously track what stocks certain politicians buy and sell at what times. And when that information goes public, which it must, it has to go public after a particular period of time, then they do the exact same moves and to great effect. Right? And and it's kind of like this. Um, This particular politician sits on this appropriations committee and they're about to pass this regulation and it mostly goes under the radar because it's not like big newsworthy stuff, but, but this regulation is going to adversely benefit or negatively impact this company or that company. And just lo and behold, the husband of that politician happens to buy a bunch of stock when it's cheap over here and sell a bunch of stock when it's high over there. The day before that regulation goes out to the public and this stock tanks and that stock increases, boy, this politician's husband has some really good instincts, doesn't he? It's, gosh, like you might think that at home over the dinner table, this person is telling their husband, hey, you should probably sell this stock and you should buy that stock because we're about to pass a thing, but, you know. But that's definitely not happening, obviously, or else they'd be doing something illegal and they would have to go to jail and stuff. So that's definitely not happening. This guy is just, he's the Midas touch. You know what I'm saying? Like, give me one of his washcloths. I want to wipe my computer and get some, do you get the point? Okay. It's not different, friends. The political class in America has cleverly developed the, look, appearance of virtue while secretly doing evil. The Pharisees had done the same with the Sabbath. 
And Jesus called them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. Desire to be holy a thousand times more than appearing to be so. Jesus, by this story, is essentially saying, haven't you read your Bible? If what my disciples do by necessity somehow violates the Sabbath, which it doesn't, it violates your rules. But even if it does, then isn't David and Ahimelech's violation of the bread much greater? In fact, there's historical precedent that perhaps this interaction with David and the bread happened on the Sabbath day. And it's almost like Jesus says, I'm reminded of another Sabbath day a few hundred years ago when this happened. If my guys are wrong for grabbing a couple of pieces of grain, wasn't David wrong? Wasn't the priest wrong? Why didn't God smite them? Why didn't the narrator say they sinned? Why didn't God defend his holiness? Haven't you read your Bible? And we read the priests had no answer. <laughs> I got nothing to say. Mercy and necessity trumped ceremony then. Why shouldn't it now? They had no answer for the insight, wisdom, and mastery that Jesus possessed. Well, as we're walking through Mark's account, Jesus is methodologically dismantling this system of lies and oppression and replacing it with something new and beautiful, something life-giving, the new covenant of grace. The Pharisees, meanwhile, were being upstaged publicly. Their authority over the people challenged. Their whole system and way of life was under threat. Jesus must be stopped. And if we read ahead just a few verses in chapter 3, again, he entered the synagogue, which would have happened on the Sabbath day. And a man was there with a withered hand, and he watched. they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, the irony of that is too rich to explore. We'll get to it next week. But it's like, oh, he healed someone. You know? How dare he? It's, it's, it's like, do you hear yourself talking? Like, do you hear what you're saying? Yeah. See, when we look carefully at this series of stories, we more readily understand the hatred that the religious elite drummed up in their hearts for this Jesus who had done nothing but heal people, feed people, help people, love people. You know, how could such a man become so hated except that those who hated him loved their false virtue more than genuine virtue? And when true goodness, and not just the appearance of goodness, was among them, it shined a bright light on the emptiness of their vanity. The story, though, is richer. David was, at the time, in 1 Samuel 21, under the circumstances of a rebellious state in the land of Israel. Had David been 
inaugurated and treated as the rightful next king that he was, he wouldn't have been on the run. He wouldn't have been on the brink of starvation. And if Jesus had been welcomed as the rightful Messiah that he was, he too wouldn't be reduced to walking through grain fields, poor and hungry, gathering a welfare snack on the Sabbath day. King Saul was well-fed. The Pharisees were well-fed. Meanwhile, the true king was on the outskirts, hungry and falsely accused. No wonder Jesus picked that story, right? Yeah. Well, from the situation to the story, finally we're brought to the Sabbath. And we'll wrap this up. We're out of time. We're brought to the Sabbath. And, and again, not the central story, the context, rather. And he said to them, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a wonderful statement. When countless man-made regulations are imposed on God's people, that which was intended for rest becomes work. You know, for more on this, just go listen to the sermon I preached four days ago, three days ago, whatever it was, on Wednesday night. It's on the podcast or whatever. So either knowingly or with reasonable intent, the Pharisaical traditions had so imposed themselves onto the law of God that the law itself was being broken as the regulations are being upheld. Things were completely upside down. It's like the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, I looked to the seat of justice, and there I find immorality. I look in the seat of righteousness, and there I find wickedness. The one who is to enforce the law is himself purposefully undermining the law. What chance do any of those have who come to him looking for justice? The answer is none. The situation is completely on its head. And so Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, confronts the teachers with this truth, saying, you've missed the point altogether. Now, the missing of the point is rampant in our society. America was a nation founded on biblical principles of honesty and commitment, merit, private ownership, personal responsibility. All of these come with promise and restriction. Promise and restriction. Now bear with me, because I know, I know we're into minute number 41 of this sermon. I know because I looked at the clock. Just remember, the Puritans preached for three hours. I'm asking for five more minutes, okay, of careful, studious attempt, okay? Each of these principles come with promise and restriction. But over time, the biblical principles that are the foundation of, of the code, the law code in our society, over time, the spirit and the joy of what these things promised had been thrown off by the population. Sexual promiscuity and easy what's called no-fault divorce have become the norm 
in a society where chastity and a ruthless commitment to marriage was initially principal law. In throwing off the restrictions, society has forfeited the blessings. Entering into lifelong marital commitment without the litany of regret, disease, family complications that accompany sexual promiscuity before marriage, that is a gift. It's a blessing to that new marriage. But it requires restriction. Blessing and restriction. A family unit staying together under most circumstances, through thick and thin, promotes stability in a society. But it requires restriction. The negative effects of these things are so obvious in our culture that I won't attempt to enumerate them. But fatherlessness and violence and depression and drug abuse and a poor wet work ethic and the effeminizing of men and the feminist movement, all of these things can be traced back to the throwing off of a few basic principles of purity and marriage commitment. The question is, why did a generation grow up wishing to throw off these restrictions? Why? Was it purely the desire for personal autonomy? Was it purely the desire for unfettered physical gratification? I don't think so. I think history tells us at least in part, that the church failed to teach about the joy and the blessing that comes with true virtue and not just the appearance of it. And then, when the veil came crumbling down and religious leaders over the past hundred years or so have been unmasked as pedophiles, greedy for monetary gain, swindlers and hypocrites, the merit of the restrictions was lost. Only the house of oppressive cards remained. Empty religion, as it is often called. All rules, no love. All restrictions, no wisdom. All regulation, no true virtue. All law, no grace, all appearance, no saving faith. Religious activity that had lost the heart of the gospel message that says, he makes you new from the inside out. The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus not your ideas, is Lord over everything, you might say, including the Sabbath principle. But the message is, the Son of Man is Lord. He's simply saying, also over the Sabbath. Which is to say, the Son of Man is Lord over your inner world. The unseen, the true you, not just the outside, pretend you. Jesus in his gospel, in his new covenant with his people, is Lord of all 
all of your life, all of your ambitions, all of your thoughts, all of your being. Listen, friends, your Savior will not settle for you obeying unto appearance. He will convict you and confront you in the deepest recesses of your mind. He will penetrate the delusions of your divided heart. No man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, we read it, let him deny himself, be prepared to die, take up his cross, die to his own desires and ambitions, not once a week on the Sabbath day, but every day, daily, and walk in my footsteps. Oh, by the way, not everyone who maintains the veil of virtue, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. These are solemn calls for undivided devotion. But like the Sabbath rest, if we walk in them as Jesus intended, we find the most joyful, most peaceful life. Irrespective of storms, stresses, challenges, or persecution. Will we stop pretending and start living completely for Christ? Or will we repeat the sins of our forefathers, of our peers, or of our past selves, and obey unto the appearance of virtue? It seems clear we can do one or the other, but not both. I'll leave you this with this quote from the Puritan pastor Obadiah Sedgwick. The principal object of God's eye is the inward and secret frame of the soul. Labor, therefore, to be cleansed from secret sins. Well, let's pause there and allow our minds to reflect on these things. Father, thank you for your word and for your kindness to us, to speak to us and to give us and preserve your word. May it echo in our hearts and minds on this day, not unto heavy burden, but unto the joy of true followership. May we walk with you and find rest. May we throw off our temptations to the appearance of goodness. May we boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. May we be honest in confession with one another in our brokenness and sinfulness. May we seek true virtue and not merely the appearance of it. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray.